0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today, as he does most Mondays, is my good friend Byron Callen uh, of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Uh, Byron, thanks very much for joining us, uh, especially having missed you last week because of Juneteenth. And we're unfortunately going to miss you again uh, coming up on on the next Monday, which is uh, July 4th. So thanks so much for making time for us today.
1: Anytime, Bago. Always a pleasure.
0: Uh, A pleasure, indeed. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems uh, sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, an enormous amount to, uh, to discuss that's built up over the last uh, week or so, uh, and indeed looking ahead into uh, the coming week. Let's start with the G7 and NATO. Uh, G7 leaders have pledged uh, to help Ukraine and punish Russia as long as it takes, as long as Moscow uh, continues to prosecute its brutal war uh, today. Uh, a shopping mall struck in the eastern part of the country that may have had 1,000 people seeking shelter in it, uh, attacks in Kiev, uh, the Russians uh, saying they're going to deploy nuclear capable uh, missiles to uh, Belarus, uh, and obviously, uh, it strikes all over the country to sort of underscore uh, Moscow's escalation, right? Whenever the chips are down, Moscow figures to escalate. Um, we're now looking at the first Russian debt default. Uh, since the Russian Revolution of 1918. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, obviously the big meeting, uh, going to take place uh, this week uh, in advance of the NATO summit is saying that the ally, uh, alliance's quick reaction forces should grow from 40,000 to 300,000. Know, where where are we? What are the interesting elements and themes you're seeing, whether from the G7 or NATO, and how we need to think about it?
1: Well, yeah, I think just the backdrop of the Russia-Ukrainian war you know, it's starting to stalemate. I don't think either side has really evidenced an ability to decisively maneuver uh, in this campaign, in this war. And, you know, there were reports last week, U.S. intelligence assessments that, you know, the Russians were really gonna start to wind down here now, but they're still still in the fight as are the, the Ukrainians. Um, and these missile strikes that you mentioned, you know, are kind of interesting because, again, you know, there have been reports that Russia had run out of of long range strike weapons, and here they are still firing these things off. So, um, I, I fully expect, obviously, Ukraine is going to be front and center, but really, Russia and what's the future assessment of Russia as a threat um, <clears throat> over the balance of this decade has got to figure very large in. The deliberations that take place in Madrid. Um, Obviously, I think you'll see a reiteration of the 2% of GDP and 20% of that for military equipment goals. I think the real question is is that really enough? Um, You know, Poland's now targeting 3% of GDP for defense. And to your point about the expansion of that rapid reaction force, you know are you really going to see, as Poland has shown, um, an actual increase in the size of their militaries in the NATO alliance, or just kind of this modernization of the existing forces that uh, that the alliance members have? And I think that's that's kind of where you start moving into a, a really whole different outlook for the alliance. Um, you're seeing... Europe and the United States increasingly supply more and more sophisticated weapons, and I, I thought, you know, the, the exclamation part the, the exclamation mark this week was the decision uh, by the United States to supply Ukraine with the NSM system, uh, you know, which is it's been developed by Kongsberg and Raytheon and, uh, you know, uses AMRAAM missiles. So th- that's an air defense capability that I think will serve Ukraine well. Um, and it, it kind of, you know, you're, you're continuing to see the door creak open uh, for more and more of these advanced current generation systems, not just what was sitting around in warehouses or, or bases or depots um, that that now you're really you're starting to see Ukraine get cutting edge weapon systems. And I, I think that's an important factor to watch, uh, particularly in the summer as we play through. And I absolutely expect that's going to be uh, something that Zelensky is going to be delivering loud and clear to the NATO summit when he speaks uh, this week at that event in Madrid. I think G7, you know, you're right. There's been a pretty strong United front again, against Russia, but the question really is, there's leakage, right? Um, you know, India, Turkey, <clears throat> China, you know, I th- some of the Southeast Asian countries, you know, they're not exactly um, playing along with with an air tight set of sanctions, export controls on Russia. The Russian economy has not collapsed, um, you know, and I think the the default on their debt is really, It's kind of a technical default, right? And in theory, they're still getting export revenue from energy. And there are going to be steps to try and wean wean, um, countries off that energy, but that's going to take months, um, a long time. And there's still, I think, open questions about how long unity will hold together. um, Maybe at the periphery, not necessarily at the core, but I think. There are some good things coming out of both G7 and and the NATO summit, but, you know, concluding that there's going to be some kind of rapid resolution to what to do about Russia and the war in Ukraine, that's, that's still premature in my view.
0: Um, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, point out as as you were saying, right? I mean, uh, for each action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And Emmanuel Macron uh, apparently is proposing, hey, look, it's time for us to entertain uh, Venezuelan and, and Iranian oil. Uh, obviously, all governments in Europe are struggling uh, with this, uh, and the Russian, oil, you know, energy uh, sanctions uh, are uh, biting. I, I think Antony Blinken is right. The fact that the Russians have made more energy money ultimately doesn't matter that much because they can't really spend it on all the foreign things that they want uh, and would like to get. And we're about to toughen, apparently, um, technology technology transfer uh, to Russia, even uh, you know, tighten it further uh, in order to be able to appeal uh, uh, impair their war making ability. Um, from, let me just ask you about the the shift and the rapid reaction and the investment required for Europe. You know, we've been you and I were uh, at the Air Force uh, Association conference. You know, Frank Kendall pointed out it was you know China, China, China. Uh, there were those who were looking at Russia at that point, even last September, saying, "Well, you know, it's it's also." You know, Russia, 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 uh, for uh, the people who are looking at a buildup in in uh, of the Russians on the Ukrainian border uh, and concerned about the direction they'll go into. And now, you know, there's this dichotomy within the administration of those who say that look, it's very important for us to do something against the Russians as a message to to the Chinese, and those who are actually like, hey, this is drawing resources away from whatever we would give to the Chinese. Uh, You know, some are going to argue. Hey, there was $40 billion less uh, for the United States because we are giving this aid to uh, Ukraine. Ultimately, how does this debate impact the department and how it thinks and the resources it's going to have to make available over a much more protracted period of time? Because the United States Air Force, uh, air forces in Europe are really engaged at getting munitions by air, you know, in an air bridge. Uh, to Eastern European nations to get them into Ukrainian hands. So, I mean, you know, the army is busy, uh, the air force is busy, the Navy is playing a key role, even though it's uh, a quiet role. How does, how does this affect, especially when we're now calling as an alliance for more resources? What does this do to assumptions?
1: Well, I think the first thing it should do, <clears throat> you know, I get China's the pacing threat because <clears throat> they have an economy an industrial base and ties to the global system that Russia does not. But I also think it's a it's a mistake to look at these as very siloed individual um, contingencies, adversaries, competitors, I mean, it's all gonna be linked, right? And as much as, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I've, I've long felt that China absolutely has a vested interest in not seeing Russia Collapse and you know revert to a Western-oriented friendly state because that's going to free up resources that can then be brought to bear on China. Um, you know, to your point on Venezuela and Iran. You know, okay, so there's a temporary um, shift there. You know, but but again, these things are all kind of intertwined, um, and I, I I just keep coming back to that. I don't think you can you can easily dissect these things and say well. Here's the Russian problem, or here's the Iranian problem. Yeah, individual contingencies, campaign plans will will, um, will will prompt that. But you know, you really think about it in history. You know, these grand global conflicts are conflict conf- you know, these global conflicts that <clears throat> start out as kind of isolated regional ones, then and then morph into something that does become more global in nature. And there are plenty of instances in history where that's happened. So. I think that, um, and, and to your point, you know, aiding Ukraine, well, yeah, if that ties down, you know, more Russian forces, if it, if it helps our industrial base um, and provides, frankly, another alliance member, that should be looked with a positive note, not something that's negative, that's necessarily detracting from the U.S. Um, the $40 billion, sure, it's there's diplomatic money there, but, you know, their whole set of broader ramifications and things like if you can help alleviate uh food security issues for example in northern africa that potentially avoids another security problem that could land on our doorstep and and have broader ramifications so uh i I think just kind of couching this in, in terms of you know big numbers big spending dollars without thinking through Well, what are the potential impacts if you had a revolution or or breakdown in security in Algeria or Egypt? What would that cost the United States? That might be a better way to think about this from an accounting ledger standpoint. Um, It's not just the absolute value of the money. It's kind of what are you trying to prevent or avoid happening um, in spending some of that money?
0: This might be a good uh, point to uh, shift to markup. Uh, you've been following it pretty uh, closely. We um, you know we had all sorts of estimates uh, on where we thought, uh, you know, what that plus up would look like, whether or not it would be 100 billion, or then some folks were talking about 150. Even though the initial consensus was about 50 billion, we seem to be falling a little bit south of uh, 40 billion. Right, 37 uh, seems to be where we will be we'll see where we end up with that from your perspective what was the most what are the most interesting takeaways from markup from your standpoint what jumped out at you as interesting you know we discussed some of this on yesterday's program uh, where richard uh, was was interested in where we are on f35 and certainly um, i i can't say it was surprising to see uh, opposition to retirement of uh, those 33f22s uh, uh, and I would concur with the decision. It's a terrific airplane for a little bit of investment. You can actually get a lot more bang out of them. Um, you know what? What? What were the things that jumped out at you, whether from a top line perspective or an individual program perspective? Well,
1: I'm going to say just from a messaging standpoint. You know, someone who uses this data, I really don't like that we get these executive summaries that are posted by the committees. It's like you know what the markup's. Are. Put put out put on an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> with the changes you made. At least give people more detail as opposed to this kind of drip feed of, well, yeah, we know what you, what the individual committees have wanted to highlight in these changes, but we're still dealing with incomplete information. You know, that said, what did I find interesting? I thought the the addition of another Patriot Battalion uh, for the Army uh, was kind of an intriguing move by the House Armed Services Committee. I've long felt that you know, we got a deficit in terms of, of air defense. Um, the, the 15 battalions, I think it's 14 plus one training were, were not adequate given the demands on that system. And, and again, Russia, Ukraine kind of puts that whole question on steroids. Um, the, the aircraft marks really didn't surprise me that much. I, I still wanna see, you know, kind of the final tally on what the administration proposed to divest and how it's ultimately um, dealt with, you know, by by all the committees, by the, the Senate appropriators too, you know, when they get around to their mark. Um, and I guess, Vago, I was never, I, I thought, you know, throwing 80 to $100 billion at the defense budget would have caused all sorts of unintended consequences. <clears throat> you know, I had a conversation this morning with a company about, once again you know the number of of open positions that they've got and um the the economy you know you still have exceptionally low unemployment rates so the ability of industry to digest that much that quickly would have been a problem and so i'm frankly think you know this is good um the other you know the 80 to 100 billion dollar budget um plus up had that happen i think would have had some real unintended consequences of stressing uh, stressing industry in, in a fairly short period of time
0: um I, I want to get your uh, there were there were two um, fascinating um, senior leader uh, statements um, I haven't gotten your take on house Armed Services Committee chairman Adam Smith's you know we're not de- developing F and widgets uh, here uh, and and making a note you know he was re- reacting to a reporter at a defense uh, writers group breakfast um, questioning uh, LCS and whether or not you know, the, there was something wrong with the way the Pentagon was acquiring weapons, uh, or, or whether it indicated weak uh, congressional oversight, and that was his res- response. Uh, he expressed concern about the uh, Next Generation Air Dominance uh, program, and then we heard from Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall that the NGAD had entered engineering and manufacturing development, but that there would still be competition uh, on uh, on the on the program. Let me let me let's start with um, Adam Smith's uh, comments. And, and what you concluded from them, because as much as you know, I and many other people have deep respect for uh, uh, Chairman Smith, it, it's hard to point to the littoral combat ship program and suggest that there was actually as much oversight as we needed, because ultimately the Navy will have spent tens of billions of dollars, uh, many tens of billions of dollars, training sailors, not producing mission modules you know, building ships that it's never going to really operate, uh, right? I mean, one has hull cracking problems. The other one has deer box problems. They're more expensive than we thought. They're not as capable, whatever. Uh, and the Navy almost has a get out of jail free pass on it. And then on NGAT, I mean, what, what did you what did you make of, of his statements that and really, what they mean?
1: That really gets back to the oversight question, right? You know, go through these hearings and just read or listen to the questions that members ask. Um, it's very rare that a program like LCS gets much attention um you know over the life of the program and and you know where are we? I mean yeah F 35 for a while um I think some of this is frankly you know the fact we don't we don't have the equivalent of a McCain anymore who you know for better or for worse would really he was passionate about some of these issues and a lot of the member questions are you know what does it mean for my district um you know when are you going to come visit these facilities in my district and and or it's kind of a political uh, sniping war that goes on where people are trying to score uh, political points, but not really getting to kind of these substantive oversight issues. So um, it's, it's kind of an institutional issue from my standpoint, and there really should be much more, much broader set of questions being asked, you know, uh, about not just LCS, but, a whole range of issues, you know, that that just aren't part of the dialogue on oversight of the Department of Defense, um, and and that's lacking. And so I think is LCS going to be the last one of these? Hell no, you know. I mean, they're they're more lurking right now, um, and I I feel, I don't know. I think it's an institutional problem uh, on NGAD. I mean, I find it interesting. I, I think the central question is still going to be, I'm going to do a little bit more work on this, but, you know, the Air Force aircraft procurement budget is going to be pretty interesting in the t- late 2020s and early 2030s when the Air Force has um, that platform, B-21 in production, ground-based strategic deterrent. I don't know what else goes, you know, bump in the in the classified world. <clears throat> There's still, you know, the, the F-35 cut there's still a core question about what happens to your legacy, you know, F-16, F-15 fleet as they start to age out, um, and I'm—I don't want to say indifferent. I mean, I think it'll be a very interesting capability, but we're back to the, um, you know, the few and exquisite when you start talking about a platform that's going to, as Secretary Kendall has said, it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars per unit. Um, so for all this talk about, you know, we, we're not looking at the uh, buying stuff in quantity at a lower cost. Uh, you know, kind of the counterpoint to that was um, statements that Michael Brown, the current director of the um, Defense Innovation Unit made at a Center for New American Security event last week where he talked about this head strategy that he's been working with the um, Office of Naval Research on, you know, can we buy uh, large numbers of smaller, smart weapons with range that are autonomous? You know, is is that a way to try and get around this problem? But boy, if if we keep heading down the exquisite platform path, um, we're going back to the central China question and what you're seeing out of uh, Ukraine, which is, you know, once again, a reminder that, High-end conventional conflict really chews up equipment quickly. Um, you, you got a problem there.
0: Um, I should uh, uh, I should point out that um, you know once again uh, just to give credit to uh, Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, uh, who's the Chief of Naval Research. Right, I mean, is is somebody who's remarkably thoughtful and focused on you know how to how to how to speed the process. And we've seen a number of uh, you know fascinating initiatives from uh, the Navy on that front. Um, let me take you to uh, Frank Kendall's uh, comments uh, about uh, NGAD last week. He was speaking at the Air Force uh, Association, um, you know, and, and there was this sense that the NGAD, that NGAD was moving very rapidly. It's entered engineering and manufacturing development, uh, suggesting, and we have been speculating from some weeks on, okay, well, who, who is it who's won this contract? Um, and uh, Secretary, Secretary Kendall said, It has moved into EMD. It's a highly classified program. But he said, well, we will have competition on the program, um, suggesting that we don't have a prime on that. But there are actually a number of different ways to try to parse that. There's a manned platform. There's an unmanned platform. It could be that both of them have moved together and that we have not yet decided who leads the overall effort among those two. That might be uh, an, an interesting uh, issue or that the Air Force remains in charge and so can have a more direct leadership role in in where the program goes. How did you interpret his uh, comments? Because Frank is highly innovative. This program actually was born under his watch when he was at and yeah. um, Look,
1: the competition, you know, this is kind of a holy grail, right? You have an open architecture and you you compete the subsystems. Um, and you're right, if the Air Force has control of the architecture, I mean, I don't think the program is large enough to have two different aircraft engine suppliers, but when you get into the electronic systems, the sensors, how quickly some of that technology changes, it could be interesting. It, I, I, from a market standpoint, you know, if Lockheed Martin is the prime on MGAD, I don't think it makes that much difference because as I alluded to, I think there's going to be a pretty interesting battle for Air Force procurement uh, dollars, given the number of these new programs that come up, I'd say the same thing for <clears throat> for Northrop Grumman if they were prime on this. Um, you know, the question is kind of okay. You know, what what program might need to be cut or scaled back um, to help fund NGAD, Again, assuming you're talking, you know, a four hundred or five hundred million dollar a unit platform. Um, it was Boeing, which I think is probably unlikely. You know, then you're talking about real share shift in that particular market, and the the build out of a, a contractor that uh, you know is, is maybe the, different than the two are currently dominating
0: um, the manned aircraft market. Um, it, it certainly is interesting where we're headed. Um, you know, I'm I'm just happy to see that the Air Force is moving ahead on these uh, on these uh, efforts. And I should also point out, right, Bill LaPlant was in the chair as the Air Force acquisition chief, and now he's the acquisition and sustainment boss. So that also puts him in a very very interesting position with knowledge about this program, and obviously served, uh, you know, with with consti- considerable distinction both uh, at Mi- MITRE and Draper before um, he uh, uh, took his current job. Um, Got to ask you about uh, Leonardo DRS, Uh, obviously uh, one of our sponsors on this program, uh, acquired a fascinating uh, Israeli, I should say, merged with a fascinating Israeli uh, electronics uh, company called Rada. What did you make of that deal, uh, Byron?
1: It's a fascinating development, Vago. You know, it's not one of those deals that I think has major strategic kind of a ripple effect that everybody now has to, you know, the game of chess where one company makes move and then everybody else has to make counter moves. It kind of gets to a couple of key issues for Leonardo and DRS. Um, First, you know, when the deal happens and and DRS then starts to become a publicly traded company, you know, they've kind of been buried in Leonardo. And I think there's a very interesting growth story there that really hasn't been teased out that I think will now be kind of part of a publicly traded equity. Um, So that's one really, I think a very intriguing change. I think there's a lot that people just don't understand about DRS, Um, you know, because it is part of of Leonardo. This is maybe more of a market perspective than the customers that DRS deals with, uh, particularly in the United States. But, you know, their participation on the Columbia class um, ballistic missile submarine is really intriguing. They have some fascinating uh, technologies related to the electric drive on on that ship. Um, the addition of the Rada radar um, to their suite of sensors, and their—I think—you know what they talked about on the call, their ability to, to now integrate sensor data from a whole range of sources is, is going to be a pretty intriguing thing to watch. Um, and you know, I—I I, I think having a publicly traded stock. Um, also is going to matter in their ability to attract and retain um, talent talented individuals because um, you know that that e- equity is an important part i think uh, particularly for middle or senior management um, you know not just paying people but also giving a stake in a business is going to be important as well too. <clears throat> and if they can see the direct linkage between their performance and how that equity performs um, that that can be a very powerful tool so, uh, I applaud them for their creativity in this, um, and, and I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see how it unfolds going forward. Uh,
0: and we are going to have uh, an interview um, with uh, Bill Lynn uh, that will be airing on our uh, Sunday uh, podcast, uh, this coming Sunday's podcast, uh, to talk to him a little bit about the transaction and what's next for the company. Um, I want to go to the week ahead in a moment, uh, Byron, but I, I realize that we talked about the war a little bit at the top, but to sort of get an update. Uh, from you on, on where, where we stand and how it's actually having maybe programmatic uh, effects, right? I mean, one of the things that uh, Secretary Kendall discussed was uh, the the man-on-man teaming element uh, that we're, you know, that obviously is at the heart of NGAD uh, and the ability of man uh, platforms to be sort of the the quarterback of a, of a digital and digitized unmanned force is uh, a little bit reminiscent of the stuff that, uh, frankly, Gordon Sullivan was talking about going back three decades where Comanche was the quarterback of the di- Army's digital battlefield of the future. Um, you know, what what are some of the things you're picking up given where we are uh, in this war now? um you know, pressing ahead into its fourth month and with the Russians increasingly messaging and pushing back, you know, whether it's on the Kaliningrad stuff saying, hey, look, if, if, if we remain blocked, uh, you know, and, and uh, from being able to put rail traffic in there and obviously EU sanctions being used as uh, an excuse by the Lithuanians to say, well, you know, you, I mean, you can't get through here with some of that trade, take it by sea. Uh, and the Russians saying, well, you know, we're going to take military means, uh in in that case right i mean sort of where, where are we and what are some of the lessons you're drawing
1: well again it, it kind of comes back to the resourcefulness of of countries and you're seeing this both with russia and ukraine and using uh, commercial drones um i think last week you know one of the very interesting things was this attack on a russian refinery in the rostov region um by a ukrainian drone and some of the imagery of that drone uh, some observers concluded that it was actually a drone that uh, ukraine had modified that you can buy f- off alibaba for right. a couple of thousand euros and you know I, you just play with these i mean uh, the the specs on this particular drone made in china uh you know they can have a 350 kilometer range so this this idea about <laughs> drones uh, critical infrastructure you know we saw it I think it was 2019, where the Iranians launched a a drone strike on the Abqaiq facility in in, uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, again, it kind of comes back to this problem of, um, you know, we focus on China on the high end threat, and then you start seeing these other things pop up uh, that are actually very cheap and inexpensive to do that can have some pretty interesting consequences, particularly if they're done at scale. And I just wonder if that's not something we're going to see more of uh, in this conflict. Um, and again, it suggests Russia does not have the air defense uh, network to to prevent these types of attacks from happening. And to the extent that Ukraine can damage critical infrastructure in Russia, um, it's going to be a problem for them. And I'd say the same thing, you know, that, that shoe can be put on the other foot as well, too, as Russia, you know, maybe exhausts some of its higher end inventory of Iskander's um, and Calibre missiles, uh, you know, these kind of lower order um, off the shelf solutions are, are still viable and they're, they're gonna be a problem. So I, I find that really intriguing as a development that, that the industry in general is gonna to have to contend with.
0: Um, just very briefly before we go to the week ahead, um, Mosquito uh, was the unmanned uh, portion of the UK Tempest, uh, or I should say UK, Sweden, Italy, uh, Tempest program. Um, did that? What did you make of that?
1: I don't know, Vago. I mean, I, I just saw that it was canceled, it was dropped. I don't know if that's a, a feasibility issue. I don't know if there's something else you know, that they could buy off the shelf. Um, I I don't have a good answer for that. I don't know. I just found it intriguing because you know, back to your point on NGAD, well, there these man unmanned teaming concepts. You know, was there something that popped up where it's too vulnerable or it wasn't gonna? It wasn't economically feasible. I don't know.
0: Uh, Indeed, it's um, um, fascinating, and and why I think you have to be honest on what the role of unmanned system is, how unmanned systems are, how you use them uh, in this uh, broader uh, context. Um, and tomorrow we're going to hear from Trey Stevens of Andrel Industries, uh, who's going to kind of give us this, uh, a, a take on sort of technology development and how you move the ball forward because that's a company uh, that clearly is trying to do that. Uh, give us a tour of the week ahead and what it is the audience should be paying attention to.
1: Well, obviously, the NATO summit in Madrid is going to be the, the critical one. And, and, you know, whatever announcements there, there have, as you mentioned, been a couple from the G7 summit. Um, Royal United Services Institute in London is doing a land warfare conference on the 28th and 29th. Um, Hudson has a pretty interesting event, um, the electromagnetic spectrum. There's another event, a think tank event being held on the war in Ukraine and Taiwan's defense planning. I believe that also is Royal United Services Institute. That's taking place on Friday.
0: Byron? Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you have a great week, a great weekend, and a great uh, Independence Day holiday. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, as always, Fargo. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next-generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.